Well, who do you expect to see when you go to church? Who's coming to church this week? Who's going to be there? It's an incredibly important question for us to answer this morning. It can make all the difference in how a church answers this question together. It can help us set expectations, help us understand how we ought to be prepared to treat each other. When you go to a rodeo, what do you expect to see there? What do people do? What do they wear? How do they act? When you go to a fashion show, what do you expect to see? What kind of people are gathering on either side of the runway? When you go to a concert, when you go to a wine tasting, when you go to the opening of a restaurant, when you go to the domain, when you go to Walmart, don't answer the Walmart question. Who do you expect to be there? What kind of people are gathering at the church? That's the question I want to answer this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks that you have been so kind to us that in your sovereignty and your power, you have been gracious and attentive to us. By your word this morning, would you help us? We come here today with certainly ways that we need to repent, ways that we should turn from sin, from doubt. And we come here with ways that we we just need encouragement to keep going. Would you help us know ourselves by your word, where to repent, where to turn, where to continue on in faith, that you might be glorified and our joy might increase in Christ's name, amen. Well, we have uh, been going through the book of Revelation as a church, and uh, a couple weeks ago we just ended chapter 3. Last week we just did a sermon just on the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him here, and today we're going to take a break from Revelation. I'm going to preach from 1 Samuel chapter 22. Starting this week, I'm going to be gone for several weeks, some by myself, some with my family. I'll be at the Southern Baptist Convention in a couple of weeks, which is a prayer point. You don't have to read much news to know that I would love if you would pray for the Southern Baptist Convention in the coming weeks and for myself. My wife and I will be taking our oldest three uh, to preteen camp. Make that a prayer priority as a family, please, uh, for our souls uh, that week. Uh, I'll be traveling uh, some. We'll take some family vacation. But I've just been thinking a lot lately about 1 Samuel 22. It was a subject of study uh, last week. Brother Delmar led us in a study of 1 Samuel 22 in our men's night. It's just been rolling around in my brain and my heart, and I just felt the Lord was leading me to kind of get it out and preach it and share it and let it be and encouragement to us uh, before I am personally away for a few weeks. Let's think about 1 Samuel for just a moment. 1 Samuel is really just the narrative record of the fall of King Saul and the rise of King David. The narrative of Scripture from everything up to 1 Samuel has been getting us ready for this king that's going to arrive in 1 Samuel. 
So Deuteronomy, for example, hundreds of years before 1 Samuel, we are given instruction. The people of Israel are given instruction for what a king ought to do and what he ought to be like. In the book of Judges, the, the very last sentence in the book of Judges says, in these days there was no king, as if we're waiting for this day that the king comes. The next book, the end of Ruth, ends with the genealogy of the would-be king, David. All the books leading up to 1 Samuel are in some way or another kind of peeking over the horizon of the narrative, looking forward to the day, thanks Ben, looking forward to the day, all those things Michael said about you were true last week, 100%. Thank you, brother. All these things, this narrative is moving forward to the coming king. When, when, when Samuel anoints a king, but we're going to see that this has some twists and turns to it, to say the least. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the first king of Israel. The first king in Israel was a man named Saul. The people of God went to Samuel, who was kind of a pre-king leader, judge and prophet. And they went to him and said, we want a king like all the other nations. A king who can take us to war. A king who can lead us into battle and fight for us as if they needed that. Samuel tried to keep them from this mistake, tried to keep them from forsaking God and following a man instead, but they persisted. Then God permitted them to have this king. And this is what 1 Samuel is all about. God gives Israel their idea of a king, this man named Saul, but God raises up his own faithful king, David, through the whole book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is about David's rising up, and it's about Saul's terrible fall. You can see it in many ways. One of the ways that you can see this, there's multiple themes to follow through 1 Samuel. One of the themes that you can follow through 1 Samuel to see the rise of David and the fall of King Saul is to watch the heads get cut off. This is an important theme through 1 Samuel. Watch the heads that roll. See how wicked Saul was in God's eyes by following the heads. Three heads get cut off in the story of 1 Samuel. The first one is Dagon. Dagon was the statue of the God of the Philistines. The Philistines in battle captured the Ark of the Covenant, which was an object of worship meant to be in the temple. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, Yahweh's object of worship, if you will, a means for worshiping him. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines placed it next to their god, Dagon, in Dagon's temple. And 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 says that when they woke up in the morning, Dagon, their statue, had fallen on his face, and his head and his hands had been cut off. The second head is Goliath. It's fairly common knowledge that David killed Goliath the Philistine with a stone in, that sunk into his forehead, forehead. But what happened next? 
1 Samuel 17, verse 49. You can mark this or flip there quickly with me. 1 Samuel 17, 49. After David slung the stone into Goliath's head, look what it says. 1 Samuel 17, 49. This process of events should sound familiar. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. And what did Goliath do? This phrase should sound familiar. He fell on his face to the ground. Does that sound familiar? In 1 Samuel 17, 51, a couple of verses later, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, talk about poetic justice, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. I don't know about you, that was never depicted on a felt board in Sunday school. They just didn't do R-rated felt boards, right? But this is the main, a main theme narrative in 1 Samuel. Watch where the head goes. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 57. Abner then brought David the victor over Goliath. Abner brought David before Saul, and when David gets into Saul's presence, David still had the head of the Philistine in his hands. He shows up, the little shepherd boy that everyone doubted, with Goliath's head in his hands. Now, these are good campfire stories, by the way. But then Saul's head is the third. The book of 1 Samuel ends, that's the end of 1 Samuel, with Saul's death. He died in battle against the Philistines, which was ironic because why did they want a king in the first place? To save them from battle with all the other nations. And 1 Samuel ends with their king Saul dying in battle, losing the battle. What did the Philistines do? 1 Samuel 38, 31, verse 8 through 9. The Philistines found Saul and cut off his head. And we have to look outside of 1 Samuel, but there's another important thing to note about Saul's head. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, another chronicle of the same time period. First Chronicles 10 gives us the details that the Philistines took Saul's armor and they put it in the temple of their gods and listen, they fastened Saul's head in the temple of Dagon. Is the irony thick or What? Three heads removed. Between Dagon's head, Goliath's head, and Saul's head, and David, David's the only one with a head on his shoulders when we get to the end of 1 Samuel. Could it be more clear that Saul was not a man of God? 
Saul was not a man of God. Saul was as opposed to the God of Israel as Goliath and Dagon. And God was as opposed to Saul as Goliath and Dagon. Do you hear this? This king the people wanted, God rejected. And he had rejected God. Now, why does this matter? There could have been multiple themes that we could have seen the comparison between Saul and David and Saul and God. The head one seems to kind of stick in the memory a little bit differently. It's poignant for a reason. Why take time showing Dagon and Goliath and Saul's heads? Because the graphic depiction worked throughout 1 Samuel shows just how opposed to God Saul was and just how favored by God David is. It could not be a starker contrast than heads cut off. And that matters a great deal when we come to our passage today and we see who is gathered around David and who throughout the book of 1 Samuel gathers around Saul. David the victor, God's king, who comes to him? Saul, the wicked king, basically as Dagon to God. Who's around? Who's gathered to him? Because as goes those who are wicked and opposed to God, we find that so it goes with those who are gathered around them. Part of the narrative of the evil of Saul is who Saul surrounds himself with along the way. You can compare David, you can compare Saul by the way that they fight wars. You can compare David and Saul by whether or not they keep God's commands and whether or not they keep their heads. And you can compare David and Saul by who is gathered around them. But lest we simply think that those who are gathered around David and those who are gathered around Saul are, are just kind of a passive, neutral part of the story... We need to look at the stark contrast between Saul and David to see that there is an inseparable, incredible difference between those who gather with David and those who are surrounded around Saul. Who is around Saul? Who does Saul gather to himself? 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 52 1 Samuel chapter 14, 52, at the end of fighting with the Philistines, there's a descriptive phrase of Saul's life as king. It says, there is hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. I mean, all to the last day of Saul. And what? What was Saul known for? 
All of Saul's life in battle with the Philistines, what was he doing? And when Saul saw someone strong, saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Saul grabbed them. Saul was a king where it was always the draft. We're always finding the best. We're always finding the strongest. And I want them to be around and by me. The king surrounding himself with strength. Which brings us to our text, 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to see a comparison between those that Saul surrounds himself with and those who David surrounds himself with. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6, the next passage right after what Marilyn read for us. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Just know that the book of 1 Samuel is doing this on purpose. This is not just kind of how the narrative went. Every chapter from 8 forward is a comparison between David and Saul. That's what it's about. That's how it's structured. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 22 a comparison between those who are gathered around David, those who are gathered around Saul. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Now, Saul, already at this point paranoid of David. David, Saul has been hearing the song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands against the Philistines. And Saul knows he's in trouble. David is the favored David is getting victory and popularity. Now look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. He found out where he was because Saul was chasing David to kill him. And the men who were with him, those who were with David. Keep reading 1 Samuel 22, 6. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree, which is where Saul would end up, by the way, but a little bit lower than at this point. Under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants, those are his warriors, those who are doing his bidding, those who are defending him, were all standing about him, making sure no one got to him. What do we see about Saul here? Saul's taking it easy in the shade. Saul has the high military position geographically, the favored military position. And and what does Saul have in his hand? He's got a spear. Who else came with the spear in their hand? Goliath, don't miss it. And who does Saul have around him? All his servants were standing about him. All those strong men, those valiant men that Saul has been collecting up for himself and attaching to himself, standing around him. Guarding him. Now just don't miss the irony that Saul was supposed to be the king defending God's people before his enemies. But Saul has Israel circled around him to guard him from his enemies. It's wicked. Who gathers around David? Who comes to this anointed but not yet king. Look at 1 Samuel 22. Just look at verses 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
There's a psalm just for this moment. I think it's Psalm 57, if you want to write that down. Just for the psalm, a psalm that David wrote in this cave. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. Saul was chasing him. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul. You might have a Bible that says discontented, which is good for us Baptists that gives us a three-word alliteration. Discontented. And he became commander over them right there in the cave and there were with him about 400 men Saul was in the height under the tamarisk tree David was down in the cave Saul had his spear in his hand David now actually has Goliath's sword which he had won by God's power he picked up in the last chapter gathered to Saul were all the strong men gathered to David were those in distress in debt and bitter or discontent in their soul and the rest of the chapter Saul's wickedness is so terrible that one can barely even stand to read it Saul was commanded to kill men, women, ox donkeys, camel children of the Amalekites God's enemies in 1 Samuel 15 and he refused He wanted to keep the best for himself. He let King Agag go when he shouldn't have. But if you follow through the end of 1 Samuel 22, you see that this is exactly who Saul went to kill in the city of Nob when he found out that he thought they were harboring David against him. He went into his own people and killed all of the priests, men, women, children, ox, camels, the exact people God had told him to be merciful to. Saul was a wicked, wicked man. Look in 1 Samuel 22, verse 23. See what David says to the one surviving priest out of the city of Nob. Abiathar, the, the one guy who got away, he makes his way to David, escapes. Saul makes his way to David, And David tells him to end the chapter, stay with me. Don't be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where do you see yourself in the account of King David and Saul? Let's think about where we are and what our choices might be. To who are we supposed to be compared? To David? To Saul? Don't be confused about finding our place in this narrative. We really ought not compare ourselves to either David or Saul, but rather consider which king we would gather ourselves to. One of the narratives that is heart-wrenching through 1 Samuel 
is that Saul's own son, Jonathan, jumps ship and unites himself, covenants himself to David because he knows that David is with God and has God's favor. We're neither David nor Saul in the story. That's not who we're supposed to compare ourselves to. We're the people who are gathered to one king or the other. We're in need of provision and protection, each of us. We're just like Israel. We do need many, many things from a good king. And friends, I want you to know this morning that this is the gospel, the good news throughout the Bible, that God welcomes the weak into his kingdom. That's who God wants to bring in to his kingdom. As sinners against God, we actually deserve God's judgment. We've taken the very life that God has given us and we've used it for evil. We should not compare ourselves maybe even to Israel in the story. We might be more like the Philistines, worshiping other gods, not even knowing God on our own, wanting nothing to do with Yahweh, our own sin being rebellion against God. And so we find ourselves, because of our own sin, because of our own allegiances, well, let me ask, are you distressed? Are you in debt? Discontented? Friends, if you are distressed, the message of the Bible is come to God and he will give you rest. Are you in debt? The answer is yes. We're all in debt to God. The wages of our sin against God is death, the debt that we must pay for how we've used our lives, our breath, our bodies, our cells, our minds for sins. And yet God does not come to us just to collect our debts. Are you discontent? Look around the world. It's very easy to be discontent. Own a few things for a few moments. Put your trust in a few people for a few hours. Enjoy some good food, but then realize it doesn't last long. Friends, stop telling ourselves that God does not want us, that God does not welcome us, that God does not love you, that God is bothered and frustrated by all your needs and all your weakness and all your discontentment. Friends, consider how you treat other people who are in distress, who are in debt to God or even you who are discontent in the world, struggling with anxiety, maybe we ought not scold one another, other people in our minds because, oh, they're so unmotivated. They're so discontent. They're indebted to me or to God. They seem so distressed. What's wrong with them? Why don't they get it together? You may find yourself placing a burden on them that God does not. David says it like this in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted, David says, and saves the crushed in spirit. 
How do we know this? We know that God is like this chiefly because that's what God's king is like. That's the whole account of Saul and David. Saul is collecting strong men around himself because he is so weak and he has no strength of God. But David finds all his strength in the Lord, in God himself. And so as the king, he gathers the weak to himself. David is but a small foreshadowing of what Jesus, God's king, is like. Zechariah, the prophet, predicted the nature of the coming of King Jesus in the future, many hundred years before Jesus would come. Zechariah prophesied in chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Isn't that good news? There's a a king coming, and he's righteous. And he's going to save you, which is what the king was supposed to do from the beginning. But here's something that's confusing. Zechariah says he's coming, righteous and having salvation, humble. What? And and he's going to be mounted on a donkey. Save that on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A donkey's baby donkey. That's what he's going to ride. This passage is so important to us, what Zechariah foresees. This is fulfilled when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem in a time that we call the triumphal entry. This was the moment that Jesus was first acknowledged, beginning to be acknowledged publicly as the king of Israel by his people. The time when Jesus is expected to come into Jerusalem, take the throne, be the king, and tell Rome where they can go. This is it. The king is coming into Jerusalem. Consider that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it was during the time of Passover. The time when hundreds of thousands of Jews would gather together in Jerusalem to sacrifice lambs for sin and eat the Passover together. Jesus, of course, was entered into Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb himself. Jesus was entering into Jerusalem to lay down his life on the cross as a sin-cleansing sacrifice. But how he comes says so much to the world. Every year during Passover, the Romans would move around as well. Historians tell us that Rome was very cautious about uprisings and insurrections. The Romans who were oppressing the Jews at the time did not like crowds. Crowds could easily turn turn into mobs. Excited mobs could easily turn into skirmishes between Jews and the Romans. So each year... When the massive migration of Jews would come into Jerusalem for Passover, the Romans would come too, not to celebrate the Passover, but to make sure the Jews didn't get together and start making some plans. They would make sure this gathering did not turn into an uprising. Jesus 
would have been riding into Jerusalem from the east, from Bethany, where he saw Lazarus. The Roman soldiers who might have been coming in from Rome likely would have been coming in sometime from the west. So maybe it wasn't at the same day, maybe it wasn't at the same time that Jesus was coming over here and the Romans were coming in over here. But when the Roman soldiers and any governors or officials were coming in, they would have come in with a cavalry on horseback, banners and weapons to squelch any uprising. And here comes Jesus on the foal of a donkey. Remember what they said of Jesus when he rode in, Matthew chapter 21, 7 to 9. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's their banners. That's their parade. Their own clothes and some tree branches. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouting, Hosanna to who? The son of David. One like David is here. The one predicted to do what David said was going to happen is coming. The heir of David's throne is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus, though, rode into town and was heralded as king, there were no soldiers surrounding him with spears. It was fishermen some tax collectors that he had attached to himself along the way. It was some prostitutes that he had called and asked to come eat with him along the way. It was some sick people, some lame people, some outcast people, some people who had no training in war, but recognized Jesus as king. David gives us the picture of what kind of king God had in mind when God himself is still on the throne. Here's what Jesus came to give us. He came to give those in distress rest. Jesus said himself, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus came to do what David came to do in comparison to Saul. He came to give those who were distressed, came to give them rest. Christ bears our burdens. The Christian, more than anyone else in the world, can be with himself and with Christ the King and with God And friends, be at peace. Have all of our burdens lifted off of our own shoulders. Friends, is that you today? Can you sit in peace? When you put your head on your pillow at night, can you you calm down? Can you rest? The only thing to do is to put your trust and faith in Jesus as King. 
forsake Saul, forsake the president in this sense, forsake all worldly kings and hopes to trust Jesus as the one who can give you rest. I love how Tim Keller puts it so simply. He just says the gospel does not put the burden on us. The gospel takes the burden off. Today, by faith in your heart and mind, come to Christ. Cast all of your burdens on Him in prayer and leave them to the King. Come to the King, Jesus, and leave your burdens at Him. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time you, that He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Friends, that's ultimately what prayer is. Us coming to God via our King, Jesus, and His name, and sometimes by groanings of the Spirit, which are too deep even for our own words, we just throw all of our cares off of our shoulders onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give us rest. He did not come to put burdens on. He came to take the burden off. Friends, when the church gathers, when anyone comes into this door, what is their hope that they might find and might become? A bunch of people gathered around King Jesus with distress to find rest. Jesus came to cancel debt. Who were those in debt in 1 Samuel chapter 22? Turn with me really quickly to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the moment when Israel asked for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17. Trying to figure out all these people who are in debt. What might be going on in the story? Why are they so in debt all of a sudden? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10 through 17, the people ask for a king. They're telling Samuel, give us a king, give us a king. We, we want to be like the other nations. Samuel is going to try to warn them right here. Don't do this. This is not going to go well for you. This is Samuel's warning. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10 through 17. Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said God's word to them. This will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take, watch this word, Take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tent of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tent of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Did you notice the repeated word, at least one of them? Take. It means to fetch or even to snatch something away. When you get the king that you want and the king that you think you need in all the worldly ways and, and human ways, what is he going to come do? Take, 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 take. It seems fitting and likely to me that those who are in debt are in debt to the very king who's supposed to be their savior, Saul. But they know they can't go to Saul. 
Saul's harsh. Twice Samuel warned in that passage, the word is slightly different than take, that he will demand. He will require your possessions of you. But not David. And David says to all those in debt, all those overcome by Saul's oppression, come to me for provision. I will give to you. Friends, this is what King Jesus does for us. He cancels debt. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, our record of debt, God set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our greatest debt is our sin toward God. The life that we have spent, the death that we deserve, is our debt to God. And Jesus rode the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem so that he could go in and not say, Now I'm king. Bring me your tithes. Bring me your children. Bring time to pay your debts to get the kingdom going. No, Jesus went to the cross to cancel your debt. To cancel your debt. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It can haunt you even if you've never experienced it yourself. The bank calls. You're overdrafted. You're behind on your loan or your home. Maybe you've started to get letters from a creditor at some point in your life saying that telephone bill that you didn't pay 16 years ago, it's time to give us the $15.47. I mean, you don't want that phone call. Maybe you don't have it. God, in Christ, is reaching out to us saying, I am canceling the record of your debt. In Christ, our sin is washed away. Now, some of us might hear this and think, well, you know, it sounds kind of like a trick. Because I was in debt to God by my sin, then Jesus paid the debt, now I'm in debt again. But listen to what Paul says. No, there is no debt. God canceled the record of the debt. Wouldn't it be great if you could just call into T-Mobile this week and go, I just want to check on what my bill is. Oh, it's been canceled. You sure? Because that's yeah, canceled. Friends, that's what we have with God with our sin. The record of our debt is canceled. Friend, what's the church? The, the church is just a debt cancellation party every Sunday morning. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of burning your mortgage. Or is that what you call the piece of paper itself? Be careful what we're talking about, people burning here. I don't remember. I remember when in 2010, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I believe there was a service here in this building where the church mortgage was burned after it was paid off. Did that happen? Or is that a memory of mine that does not actually exist? No? What did we do with it? Rip it up? Something? It went away. It got canceled because it was paid a couple months right before I came. Friends, that's what we do when we gather every Sunday. We just gather and we say, praise God, the record of debt of our sin is canceled. And we sing about it, and we pray about it, and we tell each other to keep trusting that that record of debt is canceled. 
And Jesus came to give contentment to those who are bitter in soul. This is the water that Jesus offered in John chapter 4 and John 7. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to, uh, to spring up life. And everyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty again. That's what Jesus came to offer. This is the contentment, the peace of heart that we can have in Christ. It's the change of the Spirit of God bringing to us by our faith in Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, John says, he said about the Spirit of God who comes to those who knows, who, about the Spirit whom those he believed in were to receive. Coming to Christ means the Spirit of God is going to fill our heart and our souls, our, our lives, changing us from the inside out so that two things happen. One, the Spirit changes our appetite for contentment. No longer do we long for the things of the world. No longer do we want the things that our neighbors have, the marriages that our neighbors have, the houses that are near, the jobs that anyone else has. Because we have a new appetite for the things of God to bring us contentment. And the Spirit itself brings contentment. By the Spirit in us, we can look to Jesus, we can look to God and say, we have everything we need, we don't want anything. I don't want anything. The Spirit brings that about up in us. The word used in 1 Samuel chapter 22 is translated bitter in soul in the ESV. But you might have that word discontented. The idea is that you're bitter in your soul or like you might describe bitter water. It's stale, it's gross, it's tasteless. It's not refreshing or life-giving. But friends, come to trust, gather around Jesus Christ today and be refreshed by believing in him. What is the gathering of church? We're not a people who are better than everyone else. We're not a people with a lot of stuff. We're not a people with a lot of money. We're not a people who are famous or popular celebrities in the world. We're a people who are coming to the Davidic king, to Jesus Christ, that he might cure our discontentment, that he might fill us by his spirit with joy and life and praise to God. Friends, final application here. Who do you think is coming to church? Who do you think we are? We're not the strong men. We're certainly not the righteous men. We're not even David or Saul. We're going to gather around some king, someone. We certainly don't want to find ourselves gathered around the king who's going to be headless in Dagon's temple. We don't live by the strength of the world. The gathered church, the people in our life groups, they're not the fountain of your joy and strength. Don't let them disappoint you by putting them on that pedestal. Friends, we're all just like we are. We all come to Christ distressed, in debt, discontent. But we gather to Christ to rest from our distress, for the debt of our sin to be canceled and to go from being discontented to hearts filled with the Spirit of God. Friends, when you're perplexed about what's going on, when you're wondering about the future of any local church, remember this is why we are here. We're not here to put on a show. We're not here to meet a quota. When we see each other, just remember that we are gathering around Christ the King. We all come desperate, distressed, indebted, discontent. We all come to Jesus the same. And when we gather, we're helping each other come to Jesus the same. When we see each other, remind each other 
that we're here coming to Christ to receive his ministry to us. When we talk to each other, remind each other that King Jesus did not come to take, take, take. He came to cancel, cancel the record of sin. They'll be surprised that when you gather around Christ, you're going to be sitting next to people who were distressed or who are indebted and who are discontent. But friends, we are here for God, the Son, and His Spirit to give us rest, to pay our debt of sin, and to fulfill us with joy in the Spirit of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, your word, and we trust that it does not ever return void, that you'll have effect with it in our hearts and minds by your spirit. Help us be humble before you today. Help us be humble before others today, remembering who we are and what we are, what it means to gather around Christ. Help us to help others in this way to be patient with others in this way, and to thank you, God, for welcoming us, for paying debt in Christ's blood for our sin, and giving us rest, and giving us joy and life everlasting. Thank you, Father. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.